0: Right. Okay. So as I mentioned, uh, we've like missed like a month. A lot has happened. Like Endgame came out. Who, who's who's um, who's watched Endgame already? So about half. Who is planning on watching Endgame soon? Okay. Not that many people. So everyone else just like not like not interested. Not really. Okay. Well, a lot's happened. Uh, May was kind of or April was kind of like a whirlwind. Uh, like the first week of April, we had the Youth College Retreat. Uh, the following week we had a hangout. The following week we had Good Friday, and then last week we were off. And so it's been like four weeks. So if you like, if you came to youth group like any of those weeks, and we weren't there, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you came like the week after, I'm also sorry. Um, but we're 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 finally back in, and we're running full steam. Um, and so since it's been like at least a month and a half since we've been actually in First Corinthians, I think it's time for just a little bit of a recap. And a refresher. And so, as you guys all know, 1 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians is technically not Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, it's actually his second. And as you guys know, the reason why the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians is because of the fact that there are divisions. Uh, in the church. And more than that, uh, and more importantly, the Corinthian church was becoming more and more like the Corinthian culture, and how the values of the kingdom of God were becoming more and more like the values of the surrounding culture. And so as we conclude chapter 4, and I know it's only chapter 4, uh, Paul has been calling for a subversive and countercultural lifestyle, and will continue to do so for the remainder of the letter. And so before we dive in, what we need to remember is that for the past three chapters, we find out what has been threatening the Corinthian church, namely divisions and rivalries. And uh, as you guys know, the Corinthian church, the Christian community was fracturing over status, popularity, and the people that they knew. And what the Apostle Paul exposed in the hearts of the Corinthians was that they were looking too much like the culture and too little like the cross. They looked, in fact, they looked a little, a lot like the culture and too little like Jesus. And so for the past four chapters, Paul has been asking the question, how can any thoughtful person be so full of themselves, so arrogant, so self-important, so, so, so judgmental, so condescending when you stand beside the cross of Jesus Christ? Which finally brings us to our passage tonight. And so after using metaphors of, of gardening and architecture to describe what the Christian community is like, Paul now speaks literally, almost as if to say, if, I, if, I, if if what I said still didn't get through to your thick skulls, let me just speak a bit more bluntly now. And so if you guys have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses uh, 6 to 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 21. So it's a lot of text that we're covering uh, because, like i mentioned before, I what I ended up ding, doing was I had just taken just five verses, and I was supposed to have preached, like, maybe 15. And anyway, uh, six, verses 6 to 21. <laughs> uh, verse 6, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Verse 8. Already you have, already, you, you have all you want. Already you have become rich. To the present hour we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands when reviled we bless when persecuted we endure we when slandered we entreat we have become and are still like the scum of the world the refuse of all things verse 14 I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever heard of the abbreviation WWJD? What would Jesus do? If you guys don't know it, or if you're not really familiar with it, it's okay, but are you even really a Christian, though? I'm just kidding. Um, But the the phrase, um, the phrase WWJD kind of has a long history that I don't really care to talk about or really explain, but WWJD was really big in the 90s and early 2000s, but you guys wouldn't really know because most of you were born in the late 90s, early 2000s, but suffice it to say, uh, no one, I don't think, really uses it anymore, Uh, and so nowadays, when you use the phrase, what would Jesus do? Uh you're using it less as an actual way of life and as, as a way of like actual decision making, and you're using it more like ironically and sarcastically. Like uh like should I watch the 2:30 AM showing of Endgame uh only to show up to, to school or to work like three hours later? Hmm, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Um, or should I eat Mexican food um for lunch and not be productive the rest of the day? I don't know, what would Jesus do? And so, uh, so, as I mentioned, we kind of used the, the, the abbreviation a little ironically. Um, so actually, Pastor Kim's sabbatical is coming up this summer. And so this summer, uh, you're gonna see a lot of associate pastors, uh, preaching on Sundays. And, and by the end of it, we're all gonna be dead. And, and so what you'll be hearing from a lot of us, a lot of us this summer is WWKD. Uh, what would, what would Kim do? Um, (laughs) Now, uh, WWJD is, is kind of a—it's uh, kind of a corny slogan if you really think about it, um, and it, it's also not without its own problems as well. But one of the many reasons why the Christ- the, the Corinthian community was overrun with division and had to come under the stern rebuke of the Apostle Paul was because, as much as they had professed and had even a good theology of Jesus, they had failed to pattern their lives after Him. They had failed to realize the overall rhythm and trajectory of his life. A life fraught with hardship, with suffering, shame. And I think some of us aren't too different. We profess saving faith in Jesus and even have a pretty good depth of knowledge about Jesus. But many of us have failed to pattern our lives after him. Many of us pattern our lives after the people we follow on Instagram or the people at school, how they dress and act. How others talk and behave, not realizing that this is actually the antithesis of the way of Jesus and the way of the cross. And so as the Apostle Paul hammers the final nail in the coffin, he's going to make one final push, one final exhortation to all of us to keep a close watch on the people that we follow and imitate. In fact, that's what this whole passage is actually about. It's about imitating others, but never for the sake of imitation. We are to pattern our lives after people who look like Jesus. And so the key idea for tonight's message and from the passage is that a people centered on Jesus the Messiah embrace the way of Messiah and imitate models of Messiah. Embrace and imitate. The first point is embracing the way of Messiah. And so we're going to look at this first point into two parts. Embracing the way of Messiah means that we don't go beyond the way. Take a look at verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up and in favor of one against another. Now, what is Paul even saying here? In verse six, the apostle Paul says that there is something that he wants the Corinthians to learn from him and Apollos. What is it? He says that you may be that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but all throughout the first chapter, the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul has quoted scripture five times. You don't have to count. Just, just trust me on that. And when Paul says to not go beyond what is written, Paul is referring to the five times that he has quoted from the Old Testament. Okay, so in, in chapter one, verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 29, and he says, As it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In chapter one, verse thirty-one, Paul quotes Jeremiah chapter nine. He says, "As it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord." And I think we get the idea what the what Paul is trying to do here in these five quotations. He's saying, "Stop boasting because you are not God." So, what does it mean for us, at least, to go beyond what is written? If what is written is to not boast, then going beyond what is written for the Corinthians meant that they overstepped their boundaries and took the place of God. Now what about us? For some of us, it can be something as simple as picking and choosing what we want to obey and what we want to disobey from God. Like the Bible tells us to speak the truth, and we love that. You know, we will eat that up. We love to tell people how they're wrong, why we think that they're wrong, and how much we're right, and how much we love to convince them why we're right. But we overlook that crucial in love part. You see, it's being unbalanced. It's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, when Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You see, what Jesus isn't saying is that tithing is bad. But what Jesus is saying is that in focusing too narrowly on something like tithing, they had neglected, neglected more important aspects of Scripture. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You know, I think we try to go to a biblical church, you know, like because the Bible is God's word, we want to speak his truth carefully, uh, clearly, and accurately. But here's what happens when you live in imbalance. A common mistake that I see people make is that since the Bible is inspired by God, it means that all parts of the Bible are equally important. But though all scripture is inspired by God, Jesus actually seems to indicate that not all scripture is equally important here. That there are parts of scripture that are actually more important, that have more weight, to borrow Jesus' words, than others. So while tithing is good, you know what's more important? Acting justly. Displaying mercy. Being faithful. Now why do you think they would do that? Because it's way easier to tithe than to be than it is to be patient and loving. It's way less sacrificial to sacrifice your belongings... Than to sacrifice your time, your energy, your heart, your effort. You know what that is? It's focusing on the easier parts of Christianity while assuming that we are actually fulfilling the harder parts of Christianity. You guys know. Uh, you guys might have heard of the, um, the story of uh, Thomas Jefferson who liked certain parts of the Bible and uh, but didn't really like the other parts of the Bible. So what he did was by cutting and, and pasting with razor and glue, he created his own Bible. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And so what he did was he kept all the moral teaching of Jesus while excluding all the parts of his, about his miracles and his divinity. Thomas Jefferson thought that the moral teaching of Jesus was an easier pill to swallow than the divine miracles of Jesus. And by retaining the parts that were easier and discarding the parts that were harder, he was creating his own rules. The Bible no longer centered on the redeeming God, but on Thomas Jefferson. You see, when you create your own Bible, you create your own rules. You call the shots. Going beyond what is written is where we call the shots and we create our own rules. It is saying, I can do whatever I want. I can dress however I want. I can talk however I want. I can judge people however I want. I am God and God is not. Now, how does this happen? Well, take a look at verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, going beyond what is written happens when you forget who you are and what you already have. Who you are and what you already have. Taking the place of God happens when you forget who you are and what you've already been given. You know, even though the Corinthians uh, were a bit more overt with overstepping the boundaries and were maybe a bit more covert, the problem is that whether it's overt or covert, it all stems from the same place. Taking the place of God. How many of you are outright boastful or divisive? I think none of us will ever care to admit that. But let me ask you another question. How many of you get angry or, or, or worry or complain? And I think I've captured the entire emotional range of the high schooler. But it's interesting how much all three share a common thread. Because anger says, this isn't right. Worry says, this isn't enough. And complaining says, this sucks. Do you know what they all say? I deserve better. I must have this. And then suddenly we actually find ourselves in the exact same boat as Corinthians with a profound forgetfulness of who we are and what we've already been given. You see, if we live our lives thinking that we deserve better than others, with self-entitlement stored up in our hearts, now I I think that's like the quintessential story of a high schooler, self-entitlement, we will distort the creature and creator distinction. Here's what I mean. We will turn God's universe into our universe, where God must bend to our every wish, every whim, every desire. And you know, that the most dangerous thing about entitlement is that in our delusional reality, we think that God actually owes us something. But in truth, apart from the mercy of Jesus, we all know that the only thing that God owes us is his wrath. You see, as Americans, I think, um, I think we are hyper-attuned, hyper-alert to the idea that all humans have the right to life, liberty. And the pursuit of happiness. Now, image bearer of God to image bearer of God, absolutely. I will fight for that. I will fight for your liberty and I will fight for your right to live. But image bearer of God to God himself, we have absolutely no rights. Everything that we have is grace. Mercy, kindness, the sheer scandalous generosity of God who revolves around his world and not our world, who simply blesses and blesses and blesses, not because he owes us a dime, but simply because he is God and he is good and he simply is good. You see, if, we're, if we live our lives thinking that we deserve better than others with, in, with self-entitlement stored up in our hearts, we will actually also look at others who get in our way Or who give us a hard time at school or at home as subhuman. More importantly, we will become blind to the fact that God is actually merciful and faithful. It's exactly what got the Corinthians in the situation they were in in the first place. So let me just define privilege for a second here. Privilege is the reality that some people have access to more resources through no effort of their own. While some people have access to fewer resources through no fault of their own. And these resources include anything in our environment that we can use to make our way through the world, our relationships, through school, through sports. What are those things? Things like wealth, social status, natural intelligence, and ability, and the list can go on and on. But when everything isn't fair, and when everything sucks, and when everything just isn't enough... When everyone and everything, including God himself, owes you, we become blinded from ever seeing God's hand in faithfulness and the privileges that we actually enjoy. We will fail to see all the ways that he has provided and how much of his provision has actually smoothed our entire way. We will fail to remember how much we've actually inherited God's goodness from previous generations. Like, for example, my mom lived Uh, during the Cultural Revolution. She had no education. Uh, She had to toil. And I experienced freedom as a result of what she had to experience from the previous generation. What this current generation often forgets, snowflakes, is that it enjoys the privileges and benefits of what the previous generation toiled and labored to provide. You know what the opposite of self-entitlement is? It's thankfulness. But it's not a thankfulness based on in having more than other people or in comparison to others. It is a thankfulness that is rooted in having anything at all, in being a Christian at all. It is, it is the thankfulness that through, that though Jesus was, was rich, for our sakes he became poor so that by his poverty we might be rich. You know, one way to think about, our, about privilege is actually through Generosity. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that privilege is bad. In fact, experiencing grace is privilege. But what self-entitlement often does is it corrupts privilege and prevents privilege from being what it was intended for. Have you ever thought about how the most thankful people are also the most generous people? You want to know if you're thankful? Are you being generous? You know why? It's because God intends a blessed people To be a blessing to others. That is the entire movement of the story of scripture. Central to the storyline of the Bible, central to how God has always operated in human history is how God blesses people so that they can actually be conduits of blessing to others. If you think about it, in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to a Hebrew man named Abram. Who, by the way, is an idol worshiper. So we actually know that God, in God speaking and calling Abram, there is no merit whatsoever that would have called him, that would have merited him for God to to tell him that he was going to make him a great nation. And God says, Go from your country to the land that I will be, that I will, that I will take you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you who bless you and, and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, catch this, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I think we know the rest of the story because from Abram, from Abraham comes Jacob, or Isaac and then Jacob. I skipped a, a patriarch. Uh, but from Jacob, from, uh, from Jacob is the 12 tribes of Israel. And from the 12 tribes of Israel comes the nation of Israel, from the nation of Israel comes the Messiah. The, the, the culmination of human history and God's redemption. And now, in the wake, and, uh, the, uh, in, in the wake of the death and resurrection of the, of, of the Messiah, Jesus, we as followers of Jesus join in the story of Israel. And as sons and daughters of Father Abraham, we are now called to participate in the blessing and to be a blessing to the world, to the people, friends, and neighbors around us to take what God has blessed you with, not only with what you physically have, to take gospel, to take truth, to take love, to take justice, to take God and what he has done in your life, material and immaterial, and to pass that blessing to others. You know, Christians out of all people, out of all people, are to be the ones who, take, who actually take up the cause of the underprivileged, the outcast, the lost, the sick, and the poor. Precisely because of what Jesus has done for us. Why has God placed so much goodness and abundance in your life, on your lap, in your hands? Because he absolutely loves you. Yes, absolutely. But also because through you, you would be a blessing to the world. Through you, you would be Jesus' hands and feet. And when we do that, we will be actually be freed from any kind of human boasting any kind of human arrogance, any kind of self-pity, any kind of complaining or worrying because the Messiah Jesus has made us his own. Embracing the way of Messiah means that we don't call the shots, but it also means that we don't have to call the shots. We don't go beyond the way. Secondly, embracing the Messiah means that we must count the cost of the way. We must count the cost of the way. I know I talked for like 15 minutes already and we barely looked at the rest of the passage. So let's take a look at verses 8 to 13. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the the refuse of all things. Now, Paul doesn't really paints a glamorous picture of discipleship here. In verses 8 to 13, he says that for the sake of Jesus, he is like a man sentenced to death. He is considered a fool. He is weak. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's clothless. He's homeless. He's reviled, persecuted. He is like the scum of the earth. He is like the scrapings on the bottom of your feet. Paul's a really lousy publicist for Jesus. But what we see in the life of Paul was this willingness to go all in for Jesus, even when going all in sometimes meant throwing aside his personal comfort and safety, getting beaten, made fun of, sometimes seeing your life flash before your eyes. Does it surprise you that the the portrait of a faithful follower of Jesus is actually one marked by opposition? Opposition? And hardship, not approval and success. I think sometimes we have it the opposite way. Like if we are more faithful to God, then we will get more and more from God. But sometimes I think we forget that the more faithful that you are to God, the more your life actually ends up mirroring mirroring Jesus's. I think sometimes we think that the more stuff that we do for God, the more God will honor us and bless us. Like if we just play some music, Christian music while we do our homework, like somehow miraculously, like we figure out all the answers. Jesus was the most faithful person who ever lived, and guess where his life ended up? When did we forget that to follow Jesus didn't mean having good grades, good circumstances coming your way, getting into the school of your dreams or to have perfect relationships, but to die to self daily, to walk down the path of self-denial and sacrifice? When did the crucified Messiah become a cosmic vending machine? who exists to only enhance your life and make you happy? When did we forget that following Jesus would actually come at a great cost? You know, as a pastor, I hear a lot of things, uh, some bad things and, and many good things, thankfully. And among those good things is the desire for people to want to be more like Christ. I hear that a lot. I want to be more like Jesus. And I guarantee you that that's going to be half of your years of prayer requests. At the end of small groups tonight, I want to be more like Christ. and um, And I'm not going to knock On that, it's a great thing. It's a great thing that who who wouldn't want to desire to be like Jesus? But next time, maybe think twice what you're really asking for. Because to say that you want to be more like Christ is to say that you want to share in His sufferings. Many like the idea of being like Christ, but without its commitments. You can't know Christ apart from His cross. You can't know Jesus apart from his sufferings. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 when he says in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may what? Share his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. You want to be more like Jesus? You participate also in his sufferings. One commentator writes that to belong to Christ is not a way of assuring success or a trouble free life. Quite the opposite. Paul had a successful life before he was called into his apostolic vocation. To become a proclaimer of Jesus, to actually align yourself with Jesus meant that you would actually have to give up everything. So I want to just ask all of you, maybe Christian, -Christian, non-Christian, maybe you've professed to be a Christian but you're not actually sure, have you counted the cost of following Jesus Have you actually counted the cost of following Jesus? This is where a life following Jesus will actually potentially end up. D.A. Carson, another uh, commentator, he writes that I look at my children and I wish for them enough opposition to make them strong. Enough insults to make them choose enough hard decisions to make them see that following Jesus brings with it a cost, a cost imminently worth it, but a cost nonetheless. A church that is merely comfortable, that never evangelizes, never encourages people to stand on the front line, will never be strong, never be grateful, never be able to sort out profoundly Christian priorities. Now, I think most of us, we probably won't find ourselves in the same trenches as the Apostle Paul, In some obscure world, but I think for many of us, following Jesus won't come in the form of physical suffering, but in the form of daily self-denial and daily sacrifices. Like when people talk behind your back and slander you, following Jesus will actually mean that you walk the path of forgiveness and patience rather than the road of vengeance, retaliation, and bitterness. Or when you're talking with someone that you only want to talk to, following Jesus will actually mean walking down the path of caring about their interests looking them in the eye, putting down your phone, taking an interest in what they're saying. Sometimes following Jesus will actually mean taking a risk and sacrificing your own comfort zones and even your friendly relationship with people so that you can actually give them the good news of the kingdom of God. And I can go on and on with more and more examples, but the point is where are the areas of our lives that we need to be sacrificial with our lives, our money, our time, and possessions for God? But you see, at the same time, for Paul, death wasn't truly death. If you take a look just for a moment back to verses 8 to 13, we left out some important pieces of Paul's response to his suffering. He says that when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Now, this sounds strangely familiar here. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says something similarly. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are you when others revile revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why does Paul's response to trials mirror the Beatitudes? It's because Paul found himself in good company with a godly lineage of men and women who had put their hope in God and not on the uncertainty of riches nor the shifting shadow of people's approvals. And not only that, it's because Paul knew that for every sacrifice that he made for Jesus, he was finding more and more of himself in Jesus. It's the reason why Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss, all things as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. There it is, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him and in his death. And I didn't I didn't read this verse before, but verse eleven that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Every death that you die, there's a resurrection. A resurrection life. A new life that you can live as a new way of being human. Second point. A people centered on Messiah imitate models of Messiah. A people centered on Messiah imitate models of of Messiah. So I'm running out of time and I gotta keep moving on. But you know, I'm actually at 33 minutes, so actually pretty good. But uh, I'm not going to jinx it, okay? So I, I I might have just jinxed it already. Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Now, what Paul is very careful to point out here is that despite the severity of what he has been saying, he does not, he, he, he does so not to shame them, but be, but because precisely because he loves them. So where, what we have to actually understand here is that in discipline, there is actually something as love in discipline. And the severity of what Paul has been saying only serves to reveal the severity of how far the Corinthians have gone off track. So not out of spite, but out of paternal love, he calls the Corinthians to imitate him, just as children imitate their parents. Now the fact that Paul emphasizes the need for for imitation demonstrates the inescapable reality of influences. The inescapable reality of influences and how much the influence of others shape us. The reason why the book of Proverbs emphasizes the need for wise community is because, catch this, wise people are not born out of a vacuum. Wise people are formed in a community. And so Paul calls the Corinthians to imitate him, but not just any kind of imitation. You see, it's kind of bold for the Apostle Paul to say, Hey, I want you guys to kind of be like, you know, like, mini-me for a second. Like, should I get, should Paul get a free pass for saying that just because he's an apostle? But notice why he's worthy of imitation. He says, to remind you of my ways in Christ. To remind you of my ways in Christ, I sent to you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So it's not just any kind of imitation. It is an imitation unto Jesus Christ. What makes Paul worth any lick of any following is that his life is patterned after the cross. And to make his example even more tangible, he sends Timothy, his protege. Now, many of you know who Timothy is. Paul has written two letters to Timothy. Can you guess which letters? Pretty easy. Thank you. It's rhetorical to Was that you? All right, so Timothy, I thought it was you. Timothy is a pretty familiar character. Okay, but who really, who really is Timothy? And why did Paul send Timothy? What's so special about him? The Corinthians have likely already met Timothy, and so they have a working knowledge of Timothy that we don't. So I want you guys to actually put your fingers in 1 Corinthians and flip to uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Philippians chapter 19 to 22. And this is what the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians. He says in Philippians chapter two, verses 19 to 22, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. There is a unique quality about Timothy that makes him stand out. Out of all the people that Paul could have sent, what is it? He was genuinely concerned for people's welfare. Now the word for concern here carries along this idea of burden or anxiety for people. Another way of saying it is Timothy was genuinely invested and genuinely cared about people. I know this sounds so simple, like big whoop, okay, he cared about people. But let me ask you something. Do you know anyone other than your parents who was actually genuinely invested in you? In your spiritual welfare, in your physical welfare, in your emotional welfare? To feel so burdened by your burdens. Do you know anyone like that? And you know, Timothy's example challenges me because Timothy is the picture and model of what every pastor should be. Someone who is actually genuinely invested, intrigued, will keep tabs on people. Sometimes I forget that ministry actually isn't about the programs or the events, which is often the habit of youth pastors. Ministry is actually asking, how are you really doing? And speaking into that. So a question I want to ask all of you collectively is, are you interested? Are you interested and invested in other people's lives? In the lives of the people sitting in this room right here? When we... Share things during small groups or when we share our prayer requests with each other during small groups. Are we, tr- are we tuning out? Or are we paying attention to what the other person is saying? Here's another one. When someone shares prayer requests from last week, do you, do you follow up and ask for updates? As our seniors graduate high school, actually, maybe a better question is do you guys even know who the seniors are in this room? Who the juniors are, the, the, the sophomores, the freshmen? When someone says that they have a big test or a big event coming up, do you show genuine concern? Does the the thought of this person or this other person ever cross our minds? Do we we ever wonder how how so-and-so is doing? Not in a creepy way, of course, but in a genuine concern for their welfare. And what Paul is saying is imitate that because that is the way of Jesus. The ultimate carer is not Timothy or Paul, it's actually Jesus himself. And so, to our youth staff, do we do we think about our kids during a week? You know, as I was uh, as I was working on this message, I was trying to think of someone who actually genuinely cares. You know, how the, you know who that person is? It's me, obviously. Who's kidding? <laughs> obviously not. But the person that I had thought of was was actually Megumi. Many of you guys don't know who Megumi is. Some of you guys do. But Megumi used to serve in our high school ministry. And she got married and her husband stole her from Lighthouse. And I'm I'm trying to scheme to bring her back, actually. Just kidding, I'm not. Um, But uh, she's very content being at her church. But as I thought about someone who genuinely cares, um, I thought about Megumi. Because every conversation that I I had with Megumi, she she listens. She tracks with what I'm saying and she has good follow-up. She doesn't make any assumptions. She isn't on her phone or looking around when I'm talking to her. But for those of you who didn't get a chance to meet Megumi, I I really wish you did. Because I think you really would have had a good model of what it was like to genuinely care for people. And so Paul says to imitate that. But here's one final thing that sets Timothy apart from the rest. Take a look look at verse 21 of Philippians chapter 2. He says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy doesn't seek his own interests, but Jesus I think that sounds pretty simple. But you know, like when I was in, uh, it's kind of funny. When I was in seminary, I had a friend who made this joke. I don't even, act, I don't know how real this joke was. might've just been truth, veiled uh, in a joke. Um, but I had a friend who who made this joke and it said, I love preaching. I love ministry. But you know, the one thing I hate is the people. And, uh, and I was like, you know, what? every truth, with every joke, there's probably a kernel of truth. That person was me. Just kidding. Wasn't. Um, but I think a lot of us love the idea. A lot of us, I think, love the idea. I think we're like, enamored with the romanticized idea of seeking the interests of Jesus. Like what good Christian wouldn't? But I think when the rubber meets the road, when the interests of Jesus actually call us out of our our comfort zones and rubs us against our personal interests, we're like, forget it. What makes Timothy unique and what sets him apart is that he only cares about what Jesus cares about. No matter how difficult it was. And the heartbeat of what Jesus cared about was people. No matter how far gone they were, how difficult they were, or how annoying they were. Going back to 1 Corinthians, youth staff, high schooler, are our lives worthy of imitation? Are our lives worthy of these high schoolers' imitation? And you know, like, should we fault the high schoolers' choice of imitating weirdos if we're not holding up better examples of integrity, faithfulness, and character? What kind of example are you setting to the people that you are serving? Now, notice how Paul didn't say, imitate me in every way, but only insofar as I imitate Jesus. So I better not see a bunch of people dressed like Peter back next Friday. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, But do you genuinely care? (laughs) Do you genuinely care about these kids And you seek the interests of Jesus when they sometimes ride up against your own. That was Paul's life. That was Timothy's life. That must be my life, and that must be your life. You know, I think this call to imitation is so refreshing because it calls us back to what's actually truly important. You know, I love the the simplicity of what made Paul love Timothy so much. He said nothing about Timothy's charm or charisma or his good looks, but he mentioned his character because he knew that character speaks louder than his words. The reason why Paul says what he says in verses 18 to 21, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The kingdom of God consists not in talk, but in power. You know, it's pretty easy these days, to be, these, these days to be scammed by other people. You thought people were a certain way, and it turns out they were actually something completely different and actually really terrible. You thought people acted in integrity, and then you find out that it was a complete sham. And the reason why is because you can be completely fooled by appearances and big talk. And what we come to realize is that true power is actually shown in a person's character, not in a person's words. You don't have to speak, talk to care. Because when you care, people will notice. So a question that we should always be asking ourselves when we evaluate the people in our lives, the communities in our lives, the friends in our lives is, can I actually see Jesus in them? And if not, you should probably run away. Am I more caring, more concerned, more in pursuit of the interests of Jesus rather than my own? And that's it. That must be the kind of people that we imitate. And so the more mature in this room need to be helping the less mature. And the less mature here need to be looking up to the more mature. You know, there's a... a there's these two guys that at, uh, that go to our church, and uh, one disciples the other, and um, it's funny how discipleship is at, at Church like Lighthouse. Anyway, um, the disciple begins to wear the same clothes as the discipler, and I'm like, <laughs> that's like ultimate discipleship. Uh, but lest we make imitation more like idolatry, we need to remember that we follow and imitate others insofar as they imitate Jesus. What we all need to remember is that no matter how far along or how close behind everyone is, we're all walking on the same road. We all follow Jesus, but he also gives us examples of people who are further down the road for us to look up to. And at the same time, he also places people behind us so that we can model the way of Jesus for them. So let's listen to them. Let's be inspired by them. Let's be them. At the end of the day, it all comes back to Jesus. We imitate people not for the sake of being them, but for the sake of being like Jesus. A people centered on Messiah embrace the way of Messiah. And they imitate models of Messiah. Let's pray together.